Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus is speaking here. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you once again for your word and for the, the, the gathering of your people as we come and we, we focus on your word for uh, a little bit. Um, pray that you would come now by way of your Holy Spirit and use this word um, and, and infect our hearts and our, our minds and our intellects and our emotions and, and use this word to do as you have planned for it to do. Um, Open our eyes to see Christ. Open our hearts to receive this with gladness. Um, I pray that you would set some people free this morning from some things that they struggle with. And I pray that you would most of all help us to get a glimpse of Jesus that would push us further in our worship of Him this morning. Um, and I ask all those things in His name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So, we, we've come to the second of six what I'm going to call pillars that Jesus is constructing to uphold this platform that he built in verses 17 through 20. And what he's doing is he's giving specific examples of how he has come to fulfill the law. He's qualifying not only what he's already said, but everything he will say, everything that he's going to do, he's, he's, he's qualifying it with this He's not come to fulfill or not come to do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so all of his ministry, he's clarifying that in, in, in all of this, this sermon. Now Matthew, if you've looked at some of the other gospels, I know in, in one of the small groups last week, you guys looked at another account of the Sermon on the Mount. And what you find is Matthew spends a whole lot more time on this sermon than the other gospel writers do. Um, Matthew was a Jew. He was writing to Jewish people. And so he spends a lot of time in this sermon because in this sermon is where Jesus is making it as plain as he can that the, the law that God gave to Moses still stands. I'm not coming to do away with it. I'm fulfilling it. And so it, it was important for Matthew to explain to his Jewish readers Jesus' relationship to the Jews. And it's important to Jesus as he expounds on this, on this mountain to explain his relationship to the Jews, to the law. And so that's what he's doing. So in essence, Jesus' message, like I've already said many times, is that the law still stands as the moral code for believers, for kingdom citizens. And so that's the main point throughout chapter 5 and to the end of this sermon. That's what he's doing is he's explaining his relationship and how it relates to the law and what, what the Jews had been working with for thousands of years before. Um, I know that it seems like I keep saying that week after week and I will keep saying that because every time I come back to study this, I realize 
more and more my tendency to be drawn to the, the teaching and the commands of what Jesus is saying rather than understanding the whole sermon as he's preaching it. So, like I said last week, this is a sermon. This would maybe have taken 10 minutes to preach, 10 or 15 minutes, however long it takes you to read through this. That's how long it would have taken him to preach this sermon. Now, we come to it just like a modern sermon. What he's done is he's given his thesis, what he's talking about, and then he unpacks it with points. And what we do is we... We, we try to focus on the main point, and we support it with smaller points. Well, our tendency when we come to this and read this is to focus on the smaller points, and we miss out on the big point, the main point of what he is saying in the sermon. Um, so this is especially difficult for us because, number one, we're taking six weeks to unpack these six points in this sermon that would have taken him minutes. So we're, we're focusing a lot on these little points, and... In our minds, we're so used to treating Scripture as like an instruction manual. So like last week, we come to this and we read it. And we say to be being angry is the same as, as murder. And so that's what we, we learn. We go home and we think, okay, I need to stop being angry, stop insulting people, and stop calling people fools because that's not good. Make my relationships right. But the main point that Jesus is teaching is that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's his main point. And so he's building this. And he's come to say that the righteousness that God requires of every kingdom citizen is one that far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he's, he's explaining that. Now another tendency we have is we come to this section and we want to think that it's a sort of a systematic unpacking of the law, which once again is not the point. These are just examples. I don't think that he chose these examples without paying attention. I think they're in there for a purpose and a reason, but these are just examples. And so, and we see that just in the fact that anger or murder came before lust and adultery. Um, if he was just going through the Ten Commandments, lust would have come first. So we know, we know that's not what he's doing. He's just doing, he's taking examples and he's constructing supports for verses 17 through 20. So, so keep all that in your mind as, we, as, we, as, I, as I talk today and as we go from here. Um, because we are going to spend a good bit of time unpacking each of these little teachings. And our tendency will be to walk out the door and say, don't lust, don't commit adultery, got it. When that's good, that's right. We that we should get that, but that's not the whole point. It is important, it's true, but it's not the point. The point is that we, we begin to see that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And we worship Him. We have a whole lot more Old Testament than we do New Testament. And so we begin to realize... All of that really was about Jesus. He really is God. He really is the Messiah. He really is the one that they had waited on for thousands of years. That really is Him. So hopefully we grow in our, 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 our love for Christ and our worship for Christ as we study these things. So, so keep all that in mind while at the same time let's focus on what Jesus says here in 27 through 30. So verse 27 says, You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. The focus of Jesus' teaching here is once again uh, a quotation from the law that had been insufficiently interpreted. It's not misquoted. 
Because Exodus 20 verse 14 says, You shall not commit adultery. Deuteronomy 5, 18, And you shall not commit adultery. He's quoted it verbatim from the law. So we're not dealing with a misquotation. They hadn't been taught something totally false. They had just fallen short. It was insufficient as to how they had been taught it. So this is exactly quoted from the law that was given to Moses. Now I want to take a little bit and kind of unpack what this law means because I think it plays into the rest of what he says. Um, Adultery in its original context, originally, was a sin in which a married man engaged in sexual intercourse relationship with another married woman that was not his spouse, vice versa. Both parties involved were were in in covenant relationships with another spouse, whether the woman was married or betrothed. It was the same, pretty much the same. It's like covenant relationship. So adultery is a married man and a married or betrothed woman engaging in this act with one another that's not their spouse. Now that's important. Some of you are saying, yeah, duh. But that's important because there's another sin called fornication, which is different. Biblically, it's, in, it's different. In the original context, fornication was a sin where a single man had sexual intercourse with a woman that was not, his, was not married or not betrothed. It was not his. Both, both parties are single. Now that's important because adultery is definitely the more serious of the two when it comes to uh, their punishment. If you go back and read in the Old Testament, according to the law, if a man and a woman were caught in the act of adultery, that is if both are married, but they're involved in sexual relationships with somebody that's not their spouse, they're both married, they were both killed. Adultery was punishable by by, by death. Kill them. Fornication is different. You go back and read the Old Testament. If, If a man had sexual relationship with a woman that was not married, he could go to her father, pay the wedding dowry, and make her his wife. Sorry I messed up, but now I'm stuck with you, so we can fix that. Um, now, there were times when this could result in murder, like it says, if it, if it happens in or outside in the wilderness where the woman could maybe scream but nobody would hear her, um, then, then, it, then it was, uh, she would live but the man would die. If it happened in the city where people could hear her scream but she doesn't scream, letting on that it was pretty much consensual, then they both could be killed. But it didn't have to result in, in death. Adultery, punishable by death. So adultery is, based on the punishment, is definitely the most heinous of the two crimes. So Jesus has quoted the law as it was originally given. And the problem, again, just like last week, is is not that they have misquoted the law or changed the law. The problem is that they had fallen short of the way God intended it. He, he, had, he had set the bar high and they just kind of fell short like we all do. They had fell short in their interpretation. So they had obeyed the law outwardly. What Jesus is going to do is He's going to take the stake of this law and drive it deep into their hearts and, and, and help them to understand this. So once again, He's quoted from the law. In verse 28 He says, But I say to you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. But I say, once again, Jesus is contrasting what they had heard. 
and their thoughts. They had been taught one thing. Jesus is going to teach another thing. They had obeyed the law outwardly. He's going to contrast that and take it inwardly into their hearts. When he says, but I say, once again, he's, he's showing unmatched authority when it, when it, that he has when it comes to teaching the law. This is what you've heard. But I say another thing. But I give you something different. It's often said of Jesus in Scripture that He taught with as one with authority, not like their scribes. So He doesn't stand up and, and give them another ter- interpretation to add to their shelf of commentaries. He doesn't stand up to, to give them some advice or some suggestions. He comes as one with authority. He gives this word as an assertion. But I say to you, and he he lays it out. This is how it is. You have heard one thing, but I say another thing. But I say to you, everyone, not just a married person, everyone. Remember, the sin of adultery was aimed at married people. And when you flip back in the Old Testament, we'll, we'll get to this later. You'll see that there are terms used for adultery that are not specifically for married couples. We'll get to that. But specifically in the original context, the sin of adultery was between a married man and a married woman. Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman. Now it seems to be kind of one-sided. This is all about men. It's not just about men. This goes both ways. If you're a woman looking at a man, man looking at a woman. Everyone who looks at a woman or a man, it could be restated the same way. Everyone who looks at a woman. Once again, it's not a married woman. It's just a woman. Any woman, anywhere. What Jesus is doing is He's closing the door of of any way out of this infraction. We talked several weeks ago when He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. And what we talked about was that that was just kind of create a little bit of wiggle room. And Jesus is saying, no wiggle room. He's tightening it up. Anyone, everyone who looks at any woman, anywhere, he's taking all wiggle room out. There's no room for shifting here. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. So anyone who looks at a woman, they, they, they use their eyes to gaze upon a woman with lustful intent or for the purpose of lusting. It doesn't say anyone who lusts. It says anyone who looks at a woman with the intent to lust. So the person described here is, is, is choosing to use their eyes purposefully with the intent to lust. My goal is to lust. Now the word here for lustful intent is one word. It's the same word used elsewhere in Scripture for covet. It's to look at something and want it. So the idea here is that whoever makes the decision, they decide that they're going to set their eyes on another person for the purpose of desiring them, wanting them. They're not mine, but I want them. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice he doesn't say, once you've looked and once you've lusted, then you've committed adultery. He says, if you've looked for the purpose of desiring You have already committed adultery. It's already happened. The sin has already taken place. That commandment that says, you shall not commit adultery, it's already been broken. You are the guilty party if this is you. It's already done. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks 
at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So how does this work? Why are these the same? Um, why are these two sins or these two things the same thing in the kingdom of heaven? And in Jesus' mindset, why are these the same? Because we have physical adultery, which is a married man and a married woman who are not married to one another engaging in this sexual act. And then we have somebody just looking with their eyes, just with the purpose of lusting in their heart. One is physical adultery, one is adultery in the heart. One is acted out physically, one can be done in in a split second in the mind and nobody would ever know about it. Both are adultery, both are punishable by the death penalty according to Jesus. The question is why? How does this work? Why is that so? And I'll try to explain that. First, I want to talk about what physical adultery really is. You have two people who are both either married or betrothed, but they're both covenantally bound to another person. In this time period, like I said, to be betrothed was still a covenant relationship, almost the same as being married. So you're betrothed, you're in a covenant relationship. When you come together to be married, you come and there's a covenant between you and your spouse, and there's a covenant between you and God. That's what marriage is. If you want to use the term marriage... Marriage is a relationship between one man and one woman who are in covenant with one another and covenant with God. If it's anything else, it's not called marriage. There's no such thing as same-sex marriage. Marriage is one man, one woman, covenant relationship between one another and with God. And this covenant says, I will lo- we will love one another and we will be faithful to one another forever. That's marriage. The way Jesus defines it. Now because God is God, and because this is a covenant between two people and between God, these two people are expected to honor the covenant. You've made a covenant before God, you're expected to honor that because you honor the Lord. So out of respect for marriage and respect for the God who designed marriage... You're you're expected to honor this covenant. Keep the covenant. You don't break promises that you've made to God. You don't do it. Because He's God. So, if you step outside of that covenant, outside of those bounds and that relationship, and you break the covenant you made, you're breaking a covenant not only to your spouse, but to God. God, I made your promise, but I'm breaking it. That's what you're doing. So God has made rules and he's given commands and said, you shall not commit adultery. So to commit adultery is to take God's standard that he said you shall not commit adultery and lower it beneath your own personal desires. So you're taking that covenant that you entered to between yourself and God and you're lowering it. So in essence, you're saying, God... I know that you have given your law and I know that you have made that I've made a promise to you but right now in this moment I feel like your standard and our covenant is subject to my own personal scrutiny and I've analyzed this law and I've analyzed our covenant and I've decided that my personal satisfaction my personal desires and my personal Sexual pleasure trump your standard and our covenant. And I should be able to over, 
overpower that or rise above that. So it only follows, if you're thinking that, and I know we'll get to the details of that in a minute, but if, if that's what you're thinking, ultimately, it only follows that if God's standard is subject to your pleasures, God is subject to you. So God's not God, you're God. If he's subject to you, that's the only logical conclusion is that God is not God. You are God. That's called idolatry. I worship myself. I could worship you, God, by honoring you, but I'd rather honor myself. And so you are worshiping yourself. You're making yourself to be God. So now you are worshiping the created thing rather than the creator, God. So it's physical adultery is ultimately heart Idolatry. You're worshiping yourself and your own desires. Does that make sense? So we clear on that. So that's that's how we're thinking. Okay. So then we got heart adultery. That's what Jesus says is the same as physical adultery. So what happens when you look at a woman or a man with lustful intent? Well, it's the same thing. Lustful intent, like I said, the same word is used for covet. The 10th commandment says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That is, don't look at stuff that's not yours and want it. That's what coveting is. It's not mine, but I want it. So to look at a woman or a man that isn't yours is to covet, which is breaking the 10th commandment. So when you do this, you're saying, once again, God, I know you've given your law. I know that you have this law that is a standard that you expect every human being to live by. You've created us. You're God. You have every right in the universe to tell us what to do. But in this moment, I feel like your law should just take a step aside, take a back seat. And I'm going to exalt my own personal desires, my own personal passions above your law. I'm going to gratify and I'm going to please myself Rather than please you. That's what you're saying when you covet. When you break any of the commandments, any of God's rules, that's what you're saying. So once again, God's law is subject to your own personal scrutiny. And you have decided that His law should come after your personal desires and your pleasures in levels of priority. And therefore, God is subject to you. And if God is subject to you, then you are God. This is idolatry. And I wonder if there if there's just no consequence that the words adultery and idolatry sound so similar. I studied, I looked it up, I couldn't find any relation. I wanted to so bad. But I couldn't find it as far as our English words for idolatry and adultery. I couldn't find a, a relationship, but it just sounds so similar. Because when you read the Old Testament, you read over and over that the, the children of Israel were an adulterous people. It says they would whore after other gods. Language used for adultery. They were a whoring nation. They poured after false gods, chased after false gods. That is committed idolatry. The language is is synonymous there. So whether it's acted on physically or not, idolatry of the heart is the root sin of both and every sin. So, to look at a man or a woman that isn't your spouse, whether you're married or not, is to commit the sin of adultery in your heart, which is ultimately idolatry. You're worshiping yourself. You've decided to worship yourself rather than God. You've decided that your own personal pleasure means more to you in that moment than pleasing God. Now, I know what you're thinking. I don't think that when I'm in the moment of of passion. I'm not thinking that. Well, your job is to think. As a Christian, your job is to think 
all the time. I'm always thinking. One question that just hit me like a ton of bricks this past week was, are you a Christian in your mind? Because anybody can be a Christian right here with their lips and just say it. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, they, anybody can be a Christian on Sunday morning when pretty much everybody goes to church. You just got to find one. But are you, a question, are you a Christian in your mind? When you're sitting alone and nobody's around and nothing's going on, what are you thinking? Are you thinking work, hobbies, kids, jobs? Are you thinking, or are you thinking about, you know, God? Are you worshiping God? How can I honor God with this time? What can I be doing? How can I grow in my knowledge of God? Are you Christian in your mind? Christians are supposed to be thinking. So to say, that's not what I'm doing because I wasn't really thinking that, that's not a, a ticket out. That's what you're doing when you, when you, when you sin. You're choosing to worship your own self rather than God, whether you decide that that's what you're doing or not, whether that actually enters your mind. So, we sit around, and, and we find it so strange. We're watching National Geographic, and we say, it's so strange. These people in these jungles that build a fire and dance around it and worship the sun or the moon or a tree or, or the flame itself or just or the universe. And yet, we'll walk out the door and look at a person that's not our spouse, and want them. Or we'll look at all kinds of stuff and we want that stuff. Now this may involve, and this is what most of our minds immediately go to when we think of lust. We, this may involve indecent pictures or videos or television shows that pleasure your eyes with the beauty of another person. Wanting that person, but it may also involve looking at someone else's marriage and their wealth and their stability and their personality, the personality of somebody else's spouse and said, man, I wish my spouse was like that. I wish they were fun like that. I wish we had that kind of money. I wish we had that kind of stability. That's coveting someone else's spouse. That is adultery. Wanting that person to be yours. So this coveting can come in many different ways. And it's all punishable by death. Adultery requires the death penalty. So that's the teaching that Jesus is talking about here. He's, he's, he's expounding on that teaching. That's how Jesus is taking this law and bringing it to its fullest intended meaning. This is another example of the righteousness that God requires. You don't look at anything else, anything that's not yours and want it. If you're a kingdom citizen. This is another case and point to show that the scribes and the Pharisees had this righteousness. And they had set the bar far lower than God does. God has set it much higher. As an aside, I, I, I hope that as we work through Matthew's gospel. We're studying what Matthew has to say about Jesus. That we begin to understand and see the difference between Jesus and the Bible and the Jesus that is so often portrayed in modern evangelical Christianity, especially in America. See, Jesus is so often portrayed as, as like the antithesis of the God of the Old Testament. You've got God and you've got Jesus. That's what people think and that's how he's portrayed. And so Jesus is this peace-loving hippie who sits around a fire and like plays guitar and plays a bongo drum and just wants everybody to gather around and hug and... That's not Jesus. He just hugs people. He, he would never require anything of anybody. For heaven's sake, don't judge people or set a standard that somebody has to live by. That's what America says Jesus is. Christians say that. Don't judge people. Take the log out of your own eye. That's in Scripture, but in context, that's not what He meant. So that's, this is the Jesus that, that is promoted. And then we get to Matthew's Gospel. 
And we see a Jesus who's battled Satan, quoting scripture in the wilderness, preaching the coming of the kingdom and saying, you must repent if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven. You must turn from your sin. God requires a standard of holiness that is far higher than the holiest men you know. That anger is the same as murder. That looking with the intent to lust is the same as adultery. And if anybody does these things, they have failed to meet the standard that God has set. That's Jesus. That's who we worship. So it's not just this this long-flowing Vidal Sassoon Jesus with the peace sign all the time. That's not Jesus. He's saying the law stands. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So then we turn now, and he, he, he switches gears in 29 and 30. And we turn from the teaching itself that he's focused on to what I like to call the eternal significance of holy living. Because we've seen the law. And Jesus has interpreted it for us, and he's shown us how deep into our hearts this commandment goes, that it's... it's far more serious than we understand. Then he moves on to the importance of ridding our lives of this type of behavior. Got to get rid of it. I think a lot of times we we tend to drastically downplay sin in our lives. This is another another fault of American evangelicalism as most of us have been raised to know it. We downplay sin. We downplay the effects of sin in our lives. We downplay the effects of sin on the world. We downplay the power that sin has over us. What Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's way worse than we understand. It's so bad. But we live in a society where Christianity has not only falsified Jesus and made him out to be this bearded sissy, But they've also taken what the Bible calls sin against a holy God and turned it into mistakes, character flaws, bad decisions, setbacks, issues, and so on. So evangelicalism has tossed this idea of sin and depravity, the idea that that our, our will is in bondage to sin, that we can only sin, and we've made salvation about coming and receiving a friend, receiving a better life, instead of... Coming and pleading for mercy from God for our sinful behavior. Remember we talked about that that parable that Jesus told. Who was justified? The one who said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's who went home justified. Because the truth is, we are sinners. We are sinners. The Bible teaches that we are born into sin. Dead in sin. Children of wrath by nature. Enemies of God. Ungodly. The intentions of man's heart is wicked from birth. The thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. Those are quotes from scripture describing us. We are sinful people. Apart from Christ, our will is in bondage to sin and can only sin. We only want to sin. We cannot submit to God's law. We cannot please God. If you've ever been angry with someone, you didn't just commit murder. You are a murderer. If you've looked at another person lustfully, you didn't just commit adultery. You are an adulterer. If you've ever lied or stolen, you're not just a liar. Or you didn't just steal and you're not, you didn't just tell a lie. But you are a liar. You are a thief. This is the human condition apart from Christ ever since Adam sinned in the garden. We are all born under this sin nature. 
and this curse. And see, we have to understand that properly and how sin has affected us and how it taints us. But we almost we also have to understand how that relates to God. Because see, God can have no dealings with sin. He can't look upon sin. Sin separates us from God. The paycheck that we have acquired because of our sin is death. God owes us death. He owes us eternal hell because we are sinners. The fact that we get angry with brothers and sisters, the fact that we insult one another, the fact that we lust with our eyes, all of that is proof that we are by nature children of wrath and God owes us punishment. If He doesn't punish us, He's no God. All of that. We, we think about that and it just it should weigh on us. All of that to say, if you're a Christian today, you are in a battle for your life. Every single day. Sin waits for us around every corner, on every television show, every magazine, every store, every billboard, in every, every traffic jam you get in every single day. As soon as your feet hit the floor in the morning, your sin nature is waiting to get you. Satan wants to get you and deceive you and drag you away, lead you astray. And we have to battle for this. We fight. We are the church militant. We are in a battle, spiritual warfare. In verse 29, Jesus addresses this. 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's obviously speaking figuratively. Don't go home and gouge your eyes out or cut your hands off. The point of all of this is that this is in our hearts. It's so much deeper than... than, than physically doing these things. So there were people in the early church who took this to the extreme and would gouge out their eyes and cut off their hands. The only problem is you've got one more hand and one more eye. And if you're like me, your other eye and your other hand are just going to have to work double time to make up for the sin that your other members were missing out on. So that's not the point. The point here is it's so deep and so spiritual that we have to avoid sin and rid our lives of temptation to sin and flee the desires of the flesh. And that fleeing and that avoiding and that running is more important than the most valuable things you can imagine. In Jesus' day... The right eye was the better eye, the honorable eye. The right hand was the good hand, the honorable hand. That's why they use terms like the right hand of fellowship or Jesus said at the right hand of the Father. The right hand was the hand of honor. The right eye was the, the better eye. So Jesus is saying it would be more beneficial to lose the most valuable body parts you have, the most honorable body parts you have, than to continue being tempted day after day after day. Romans 8.13, it says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the, of the body, you will live. So we're in a, a literal battle. We have weapons. There's, there's killing. We're in a battle. We must kill our sin. We must put our sin to death. John Owen the Puritan said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's a battle. That's happening. And, and just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're 
excluded from this battle. That means you've been thrust into the front lines. And Satan comes after you. Trust me, from personal experience, this has become more real to me just this week than I've ever known. If you take a stand or you do like Job and you make a covenant with your eyes that you're not going to look at things you shouldn't look at or, or any other sin, you take a stand and you set out to be obedient and to put sin to death in your life, any sin, you say, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm done with that. That will be, that will mark the beginning of the hardest battle in your life. It starts from there. You've never known a battle against sin until you say, you stand firm and you say, I'm going to fight. I'm done with it. I'm not messing with it anymore. By the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I will kill this sin. When you say that, Satan hears it and he takes you up on that offer. He comes after you with everything he's got. And you will be required to fight like you've never fought before in this battle. And Jesus says, it would be better for you to fight with everything you are and come back from war wounded, your eyes out, your your better, your the best, most precious members of your body gone and having won than to just kind of step back and, 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 and not really fight and lose the battle. Keep your eye, keep your arm and remain in your sin. It's more precious to do that. Paul said if we, 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 we put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit. Ephesians 6.17 6, 6, tells us that the only offensive spiritual weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is where we get into how important this book is. And I love getting to this point because I, it's, it's so evident in scripture when we go to battle and we battle the desires of our flesh we battle Satan and his angels we carry one weapon in our arsenal and it is the word of God it's the same weapon that Jesus used in the wilderness when he's battling Satan Satan tempts him he pulls it out man will not live by bread alone by every word that comes out of the mouth of God he tempts him again You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He pulls out again. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Every time He pulls out the Word, this is the only weapon we have and this is what we do. I cannot overcome this temptation. I'm just a sinner. I don't know what to do. Sunday morning comes and we'll open it back up and then we go home and we sit down. I don't know what to do. I can't beat this sin. This is the only weapon we have. The sword of the Spirit. So how does that work? And I'll close with this. I don't like having that closed. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the doctrine of revelation. And we learned that through Scripture, God has revealed Himself to us. Through Scripture. And we, everything that we need to know about God, everything that God wants us to know about Himself is here. This is where it is. And so we learn, we come to this and we learn about God's character. We come and we learn about His holiness, His glory, His power. Everything we need to know is in Scripture. And so when we wield this sword, this weapon, 
when we spend time with our weapon, when we sharpen our weapon, when we hang out with our weapon and we're around it, we come in, become intimately acquainted with our weapon. We come used to carrying it around and our arm doesn't get heavy anymore because we're just so used to having it. We use this word and we read the word and we study the word. We grow in our knowledge of God. Not about ourselves. We do learn some things about ourselves. But ultimately, we, we learn about God as we study Scripture. We grow in our respect for God and our appreciation for God. We grow in our adoration and our worship of God as we realize who He really is. And in all that, we grow in our satisfaction in God. We realize God is all I need. He is everything that I could ever need. We grow in our delight in God. We delight in God. We're satisfied with God just the way He is. And so here's what happens. We, we begin to see God in all His glory as we study Scripture. As He's revealed in the written Word. And He begins to look more and more beautiful to us. As we get to know Him, it's like, man, I cannot believe I didn't know this God. Man, He's, he's doing these crazy things. These stories, man, I just love God. God is so cool. We grow in our adoration of God, our respect for God. He becomes more and more beautiful to us. And as a matter of fact, God and the honor of God and the worship of God and the obedience of God becomes more beautiful to us than sin. And we want to delight in God more than we want to delight in sin. It becomes more, more pleasurable for us to honor the Lord than it does to sin. So, God becomes more beautiful than covetousness or anything that we might look at and desire. God looks more beautiful than lust. God looks, looks more beautiful than, than adultery, than lying, than stealing, than cheating. God becomes more beautiful than all of those things and it doesn't matter. You can say, hey, what do you want for supper? An M&M or a hamburger? I'm going to say the hamburger. Why? Because the hamburger looks more desirable than the M&M. Because the M&M is not going to do a whole lot. You get the idea. We delight in God. We want God more than we want our sin. And honoring God and pleasing God becomes more satisfying than any momentary pleasure we could ever imagine. And as that transformation happens, we study the Word of God. We get to know God. We learn to pleasure and delight in God. He becomes more pleasurable than sin. Then the pleasure of sin begins to fade in the background as we become more and more enthralled with the glory of God. It's just like, sin? Who cares? What, what, what am I going to do? Sin? I've got God over here. I can delight in God. We, we, we become fascinated with the glory of God. As Scripture says, it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And we delight in God. That is Christianity. When you, you true Christianity is coming to God to get God. And loving God because He's God. And, and delighting in God because He's delightful. Because He's glorious. Because He's beautiful. True biblical Christianity... Loves God because He's God and loves God but, but more than we love our sin. So when this happens, when we begin to love God more than we love our sin, we know that we're truly being transformed into the image of Christ. Because we begin to love the Father and delight in the Father like Jesus loves the Father and delights in the Father. And we begin to love Jesus like the, like the Father delights in Jesus. And we love the Son like the Father delights in the Son. And that love that has eternally existed between the Father and the Son, between one of them, exists in us. 
And we delight in God like they delight in one another. And Jesus' high priestly prayer is answered. Father, I pray that the love with which you have had for me from the beginning would exist in them. And it comes. And we delight in God more than we delight in our sin. We love Jesus like God loves Jesus. And God becomes more beautiful than sin. And we're transformed. It says in Scripture, when we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are transformed into the same image. The image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. So we're sanctified. We're set free from the power of sin. And this battle against sin will get easier and easier and easier. It'll never be over, ever. Until you die, it will never be over. But victories will be will come easier. They'll come more swift. Because God will begin to look more beautiful to you than your sin does. So some of you fall prey to your desires day after day after day. And you want an easy fix. You want to just stiffen your upper lip and say, I'm done. I'm not going to do it anymore. And you want to power through it. And you refuse to pick up the only offensive weapon you have. You refuse to become intimately acquainted with the Word. You refuse to study the Word. Pick up your weapon. Pick up your sword. Get acquainted with your sword. Learn your sword. Study your sword. Read books about your sword. Learn it. Know it. Trash the TV. Trash the magazines. Trash the hobbies. Trash everything else that, that, that there is. And pick up the book because, and, and then you think, it's not really worth all that. Jesus says it's actually worth your right eye and your right arm. So, let's weigh these two. I don't think any of us would say, oh, i got this hobby, but I'll trade my right arm. I'll trade my right arm if I could go do this or do that. All these other things that we fill our time with. And Jesus says, it's worth your right arm and your right eye to, to run from sin, to get away from it. It's worth it. It really is. And when you leave here, you're going to try and you're going to try and you're going to try and you're going to realize I can't do it. That's the point of the law. I cannot do this. Satan comes at me harder every day and I cannot do this. And that's where the gospel comes in. Trust Jesus. He's done it for you. It's already done. Trust in Jesus. We cannot do it. We're going to battle and we're going to try and we're, we'll win some and we'll lose some. But ultimately we're never going to be completely free from this. So we trust Jesus. That's where our salvation comes from. We trust in Jesus and His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We look to Jesus. That's always the answer. We look to the law and we're going to realize, I cannot do that. The scribes and the Pharisees could actually do it sometimes because they had fallen short and just made it about outward appeal. But Jesus says, let me just take this law and drive it to a point to make sure you can't do it. So you realize you can't do it so that you start looking for another way out. And the only other way out is the Savior who has done it. And that's why we trust in Jesus and receive His righteousness. Let's pray.